Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello and welcome back to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings a tumultuous global economy to you. When we were last on air, a whole two months ago, Russia hadn't invaded Ukraine. We weren't seeing food riots in Peru and Sri Lanka, shortages in European supermarkets due to soaring fuel costs. And cities in China weren't in lockdown again. So we have quite a lot to catch up on. But what's striking to me is not so much the scale of the shocks... We've got rather used to the world being turned upside down. What's different is the variation. We may still live in a global economy, but if you ask what's front of mind for economic policymakers in America, Europe and China today, the answer in each case would be quite different. For China, it's Covid again. For Europe, it's Ukraine, the price of energy and how to cushion the blow for European citizens of that cost of living squeeze coming down the track. And for the roaring US economy, the problem is how to stop an inflationary spiral of prices and wages without causing a global recession. We've got a window on all three of those in this first episode of the new series, thanks to our reporters on the ground. But first, our chief economist, Tom Orlick, with his take. Tom, I know... You've been pulling together your new global forecasts with the team. What's the biggest shift that you've been grappling with relative to just the start of the year? So two really big things have happened since the start of the year, Stephanie. Um, first, we have Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, and that is a significant negative for global growth. We've taken our global GDP forecast down from 4.7% growth to 3.5% growth for the year. And because energy prices have rocketed up, it also adds to inflationary pressure. Less growth, more inflation, very challenging environment for central banks. The second big thing which has happened is the Omicron outbreak in China. We've had Shenzhen locking down, Jilin, a province in the north of the country, locking down, and now Shanghai. China's financial center, China's big port, also locking down. Um, now, that already means China will have a weak start to the year. Uh, but the question is, what happens next? If Shanghai isn't the end of the story, if we see Beijing, Chengdu, Dalian, other big cities locking down as well, that's going to take another chunk out of Chinese growth, another chunk out of global growth, and it's going to add more uncertainty to the inflation outlook. We're used to the world's major regions broadly or often moving together in response to similar forces. But with everything that's going on right now, it feels like that six months from now, those three regions could be on very different paths. How do you deal with that when you're thinking about what's going to happen to the, to the world and the world's growth? 
Yeah. So, um, I mean, with apologies to uh, Francis Fukuyama, um, it seems like history has restarted, right? Um, and it's not just the last few months. Go back to 2016, the election of Donald Trump was the beginning of a fissure between China and the United States. COVID accelerated the sort of forces for deglobalization, um, and now Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine has added more pressure in the same direction. Um, so that integration force, that globalization force, which moved the US, Europe, Japan, China, onto one integrated global economic cycle, um, that's now moving in the other direction. Globalization is unraveling, and that means you're gonna have the US, Europe, Asia on different trajectories, central banks moving in different directions, a much more challenging environment for policymakers, for businesses, for investors to navigate. Let's just touch briefly on Europe. Uh, we're going to hear in a little bit about the policy shifts that we've seen in Germany uh, in direct response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. If Europe is headed in a path where Germany is spending a lot more and on defence and other things and on weaning itself off Russian oil... And to some extent, the rest of Europe is also going to be spending and potentially borrowing more for a prolonged period. Does that change the way you think about Europe's contribution to the global economy or does it not really figure? I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, in some senses, the European project has been in a huge success. Right. Um, but, but in another sense, it's kind of under delivered um, on economic policy. Uh, the crises that we've seen over the last decade, the um, European sovereign debt crises, which affected Greece and Italy and Spain, um, were a kind of a failure of coordination at the European level, right? It was a sort of failure of uh, Berlin and Rome to agree on the right strategy to lift Europe out of that slump. Um, and on foreign policy and defence policy, well, the failure of coordination has been sort of even more manifest. Um, so the question is, is Russia's invasion of Ukraine kind of a Sputnik moment for Europe, if you will? Is this a moment where the reappearance of a common enemy on the eastern border provides the catalyst to do more in terms of having a unified defense and foreign policy and also to do more to ensure that European prosperity is spread more widely uh, than the border of Germany. We might come back to you uh, a little bit later um, for, a, for a little bit more on, on China. But for now, thanks very much. Now, I promised you three windows on the world and we're starting with the American Midwest. If you think the US is entering into a wage price spiral, chances are you're a bit worried by the red-hot US labour market. And there's no hotter jobs market than Indiana. Our senior global economy reporter Sean Donnan went to check it out. I'm looking for the names now, Aaron. This is Doc Holliday, I think. Yes, this is Doc <laughs> That's fun. Step onto the factory floor at Metro Plastics, a family-owned 45-year-old injection molding company in Noblesville, Indiana, 
and you quickly confront the present and the future of the U.S. economy. Inflation may be at 40-year highs in the U.S. right now, but business is buzzing, according to owner and executive director Carol Kroll, whose parents started the company and who on this day is leading us on a tour of the factory floor. So it just kind of depends on the job setup. Okay. This is where kind of automation comes into play. They're not having to get the parts out of the bin. It's all coming up to, you know, a level station where they're just sorting the parts. Okay. Um, and then that's it. And yet, like many in manufacturing, Metro Plastics has a problem. It can't find the workers it needs to keep up which is not just an issue about recovering from the pandemic or about the present state of a tight labor market. It's also about long-term demographics, retiring baby boomers, and the structural issues America's factories are being forced to confront as they compete in the global economy. Even as a pandemic, trade wars, and supply chain snarls have prompted conversations about the end of an era of globalization and the need to reshore production, there's some awkward economic realities that don't always get talked about, including just who is going to work in those factories. Metro Plastics has 130 employees. It's a 24-hour-day operation that is increasingly being automated. On this day, a machine nicknamed Doc Holliday is melting plastic chips, shooting molten plastic into a mold and turning out caps for a suspension assembly that will eventually go into a Tesla. It's doing so without any visible human involvement. A camera and a robot are doing quality checks. And then from there, based on the camera, it'll either get rejected or it'll get passed. Oh, okay. So, Every so often, a human operator will come over to box some parts and carry them the few steps to a station where an autonomous robot nicknamed Uber will pick up the open box to carry it across the factory floor to shipping. But this is the future, right? This is for you. This is it. I mean, yeah. The search for workers is on nationally, but it's a particularly acute one in Hamilton County, Indiana, which is home to Metro Plastics and has one of the lowest unemployment rates in the country. It bottomed out at 0.8% in December last year, and though it has crept up since, the most recent numbers still have it lying at half the 3.6% national unemployment rate recorded in March. Jim Brainerd is the Republican mayor of Carmel, the largest city in Hamilton County. It is a decidedly red county in a deeply red state that voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump in 2020. Hamilton County, in fact, hasn't voted for a Democratic presidential candidate since 1912. But ask Brainerd what he thinks the top economic priorities are in America today, and he will tell you two things that are definitely not from the Trump playbook. One, loosening immigration, rules to attract more workers, and two, increasing wages for low-income workers, particularly in the service sector. You know, America is the only country in the world that really has had immigration like we have had. Yeah. Uh, and, and we need to uh, embrace it and uh, open it up a little bit. So we don't have enough people to fill our jobs. Metro Plastics isn't the only manufacturer in Hamilton County that is desperate for help. 
companies have been turning to inmates on work release from the local jail, even as local officials complain they can't find enough guards to work at the jail. At SMC, which makes pneumatic equipment, the struggle is on to recruit people to work in a 2.6 million square feet facility that, if it was a shopping mall, would be one of the 10 biggest in America. It has been built with a business expansion in mind. So on April 1, the company started offering unlimited leave and vacation time to employees, on top of the free health care and other benefits. Sometimes even that isn't enough in today's labor market. Kelly Stacy is the president and CEO of SMC's North American unit, which has some 1,600 employees. You'll hire people, um, and then they just don't show up. They don't even show up for their really? first day. Yeah. They, they, because they've got another offer. We have no idea. You've got them all onboarded and everything, and then the first day, they just don't show up. We don't know what happens to them. <laughs> In a recent report, experts at the Economic Innovation Group, a nonpartisan Washington think tank, made the case that despite all the claims of a rapid economic change in America in the 21st century, the reality is actually the opposite. In their words, America has so far this century been, quote, mired in a period of unprecedented complacency, unquote. That has undermined what has been one of the U.S.'s key advantages through history, its economic dynamism, or its embrace of change and new immigrants. Here's Kanan Fikri, one of the authors of that EIG report. The, these issues that you know, we could have kind of taken in stride uh, back when we had you know, healthy 2% population growth annually are now going to just be felt much more uh, acutely because we don't have you know, as much positive forces on the other side of the ledger uh, counteracting a kind of a negative drag. The metrics that EIG points to include things like the slowdown in not just immigration, but interstate migration within the U.S., and a diminishing share of workers at startups. Any plea for more workers may seem counterintuitive, given that we've just gone through an economic crisis that some millions lose their jobs in America, or amid a conversation we're having about the future of work. But another way to think about it is that, in the long term, America may not have the workers it needs to live up to its current rhetorical ambitions. According to census data released in March, more than two-thirds of counties in the U.S. saw more deaths than births in 2021, and therefore a natural decrease in population. Hamilton County, Indiana, is a vision of what many communities in America aspire to be. It's still growing fast. It has advanced manufacturing and growing tech and biotech sectors. Its cities are building new downtowns and walkable neighborhoods. It has great schools. Still, Carol Kroll and Metro Plastics need workers now. This is how she lays it out from the company conference room. We do some automation automatically. Uh, Other automation, uh, it's just kind of being forced upon us because... We don't have any other choice because we can't find people to do the jobs. Yeah. Over the years, the company has taken other measures to attract people. They introduced six-hour shifts to try and draw stay-at-home mothers who wanted to be home with their kids in the afternoon. There's also a tuition reimbursement program for students. The temp agencies she and her brother, who runs the company's operations side, are relying on to fill the empty slots on the overnight shift regularly struggle to find people, Kroll says. And even when they do, the temps don't always show up or last long in what are now $17 an hour jobs. 
that's not just about the weird economy the pandemic is leaving behind. And that's not going to go away no. tomorrow. That's a no. long-term issue. It is very much a long-term issue. And, you know, some of it's the economy and what's going on, but I think a good portion of it that we've known has been coming for a while is the baby boomers are leaving the market, period. You yeah. know, that's, there's not a whole lot to replace them. For Bloomberg News, I'm Sean Dodd. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. And now to Berlin and an unlikely revolution. I interviewed the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz last summer in the run-up to the German election. As finance minister, he'd been particularly emphatic in his support for that controversial Nord Stream 2 pipeline that would have taken Russian gas direct from Russia to Germany below the Baltic Sea. Germany had pressed ahead despite Russia's occupation of Crimea and despite the poisoning and detention of Alexei Navalny. So I asked him what President Putin would have to do to make Germany change its mind. He dodged the question back then. But I guess now we have our answer. Chancellor Scholz finally did cancel the programme last month in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And this week, he admitted the whole thing had been a mistake. But that's not the only long-standing pillar of German policy that's been sent tumbling in the last few weeks. Our German economy reporters, Carolyn Look and Jana Randau have this story. Um, If you would have uh, told me what to do within the first 100 days since my appointment, I uh, wouldn't believe uh, what uh, we have to to face. A war, um, three budgets... That's Germany's uh, finance chief Christian Lindner speaking in Berlin last week. He's from the country's business-friendly Free Democratic Party, and he's a key player in Germany's new government that took shape late last year. He is an unlikely candidate to introduce massive new spending bills, and yet he's had to do just that. Capabilities always in the first 100 days, a complete change of the the um, policy agenda uh, of the new coalition. Ladies and gentlemen, so it's a great pleasure for me to. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Lindner and the three-party alliance ruling Germany plan to issue hundreds of billions of euros in debt to finance large-scale investments in defense and climate protection. It might well end up being the highest borrowing the country has seen in any year since World War II. For a country obsessed with fiscal discipline that's underspent on its military for the past 30 years, it's been a remarkable shift. I thought it was necessary, but I didn't think they'd turn around so quickly. This is Tiny Kerber from Frankfurt. But necessity gives birth to new virtues, and being part of the government comes with different responsibilities than being in opposition. The Greens also had to learn this. It's good they changed their minds so quickly. It's exactly what we need right now. She's retired after a long career as a pilot, and we met in a neighborhood cafe to talk about the many challenges for Germany ahead. 
She wants to see fiscal policy returning to balanced budgets eventually. She wants to see the country reducing its reliance on Russian gas. And she wants to see Germany taking more responsibilities in defense. We're capable of achieving a lot. We just have to step on the gas, literally. <laughs> Among the new measures is a 100 billion euro defense fund Germany announced just two days after Russia's invasion. Philippa Siegel-Glöckner, who is a former finance ministry official herself and now leads the Dezernat Zukunft think tank in Berlin, says it must have been a hard decision for the finance chief and his party to agree to. They had campaigned on a platform of bringing debt down again. And that was really surprising. I mean, first of all, military spending, that's not something that we normally go into debt for. And secondly, 100 billion is just a huge number and it came out of nowhere. Um, and I don't think that uh, many analysts uh, saw it coming. That's especially true for Germany with its checkered past. The country was completely demilitarized for several years after World War II. It built up forces again during the Cold War era, but slashed spending after East and West Germany reunified. Expenditures haven't exceeded 1.5% of GDP since at least the mid-1990s, and the country's army, the Bundeswehr, has long been ridiculed for its broken equipment. Helicopters won't fly, submarines won't swim, and there have even been reports that guns won't shoot, at least not properly. Last month, the parliamentary ombudswoman for the armed forces warned that conditions are utterly unacceptable. That'll now change, says Chancellor Olaf Scholz who promises to raise spending to what NATO has long said it wants to see. Here Scholz is on one of the country's most popular politics talk shows recently. Germany is the country with the highest military spending in the European Union, and if we now meet the 2% target, we will be the country in the European NATO alliance with the highest military spending and the strongest defense infrastructure. Another changing course that's significant, though somewhat less of a surprise, is Germany's position on Russian energy. In the past, Germany's leaders have sought close ties to the Kremlin, sometimes overlooking Vladimir Putin's annexation of Crimea and his support of separatists in eastern Ukraine. Before the war, Germany imported more than half of its natural gas from Russia. But now, it wants to be almost independent from such flows in just over two years. That means Nord Stream 2, the pipeline that's taken a decade and $11 billion to build, is unlikely to ever be switched on. Although right now, Germany is one of the key countries in Europe blocking a regional energy embargo on Russia. Here's Tiny Kerber again. Up until now, we've pretty much financed Russia's annual defense budget with what we paid for the gas we imported from there. That can't be the goal, and I think we're learning that the hard way right now. Germany is urgently searching for alternatives. Plans to shut down coal plants by 2030 could be delayed, and even keeping the country's three remaining nuclear plants online for longer is an option being looked at. The plants were slated to shut down this year, and just a few months ago, keeping them on the grid would have been a huge blow to the German public. A November survey showed just one in five people thought nuclear power should play a major role in the future energy mix. Last month, some 70% of Germans were willing to rely on nuclear energy beyond this year. 
Öffentlichkeit und I have the feeling that the general public is one step ahead of politicians here. That's Anna Veronika Wendland, who is both a nuclear energy expert and a historian on Eastern Europe. In her youth, she used to be staunchly against nuclear, but her position started to shift after spending a significant amount of time in Ukraine as a student. There she learned how people on the ground dealt with the catastrophe of Chernobyl and that they don't reject the technology as such. She's now a prominent German voice in favor of nuclear energy. A key dilemma, she says, is that the country's Green Party has long associated itself with being anti-nuclear energy, which is also true for certain social democrats. For the German public and politicians alike, the debates over embracing nuclear energy and reinforcing the military are forcing a rethink of what they stand for. The political identity of the Greens hangs on the fight against nuclear energy. In parts of the SPD, that's not different. To tell people now that we do need these nuclear reactors would be a break for many of these party members with their own political identity. It's taken just a few days to transform the man long mocked in German as scholz a play on his bland, robotic tone, into the chancellor who has turned German politics on its head. For Bloomberg News, this is Carolyn Luck and Jana Rando. And our last stop is Hong Kong, which has not been invaded by Russia and is not facing much of an inflation problem. But it has been on the sharp end of most of the other big shocks that have hit the global economy in the past few years, all while having to get used to increasingly aggressive interventions in the life of Hong Kong's citizens by the communist government in Beijing. So is this the end of Asia's world city, as it likes to call itself? We asked our chief Asia economics correspondent and longtime Hong Kong resident, Enda Curran, to take the temperature. In Hong Kong, I, I'm living in here so many years. This is the first time, uh, the worst time, I can say the worst time in Hong Kong. Because I've doing the business for 20 years, we see many of the things like um, SARS, we have experienced 911, and we uh, have experienced the uh, financial crisis. But this time is not only the academic, but also deal with so many other things. Hong Kong has long been described as a borrowed place on borrowed time. Summer warning, that prophecy is finally coming true. On the streets, People like Elizabeth Chan, whom you just heard, are worried about the city's future. The beauty salon business she runs has cut staff and closed premises, and has even seen around 20% of her customers leave the city altogether. In the past two to three years, global sentiment towards Hong Kong has soured due to draconian controls to curb COVID-19 and a political crackdown by the government. What we're hearing from the Chinese President Xi Jinping is he is urging the Hong Kong government to stabilize and control the COVID-19 situation. Charter flights for pets are a booming COVID pandemic business in Hong Kong. 
an international financial hub that's increasingly cut itself off from the outside world. Hong Kong's last pro-democracy newspaper has officially closed up shop. The first person convicted under Hong Kong's national security law has been sentenced to nine years in prison for incitement to secession and terrorist activities. The law came into force after a series of mass pro-democracy protests in 2019. This bastion of West meeting East has become isolated from the rest of the world. Its democracy movement crushed and its civil liberties eroded. That combination of politics and pandemic has raised questions about whether Hong Kong can ever regain the freewheeling status it had as a gateway between Asia, especially China, and the rest of the world. To get a sense as to how Hong Kong has changed, I spoke to David Webb, who first arrived in 1991 with Barclays, and in the year since has become the city's best-known activist investor. He's also known for recording the exodus of those leaving Hong Kong on his website. There has been, apart from the political change, which has, which has driven a lot of people, young people and talent away from Hong Kong uh, and, and threatening the future talent pool through their children, there's also been a, an ongoing drain of people who are just scared of the government's policymaking right now. The, the um, young mothers with young children, fearful of being separated from them, uh, has led to an exodus in the immigration numbers. Um, it's almost a women and children first from the Titanic. Webb warns the extent of government intervention unleashed during the pandemic runs contrary to an economy famed for its hands-off approach and it will be difficult to unwind. I think the, base, the basic issue is that, that the balance has been struck towards excessive intervention and conservatism. Uh, rather than evaluating both the social and economic consequences of the actions. Hong Kong's reputation has taken such a blow that it's not certain it can recover from the current crisis, even if the city's core business model as a channel for money flows remains in place, said Angela Jiang of the University of Hong Kong, an expert on China's legal system. That the government cannot be too complacent. Just about the fact that we are, we still remain a global financial hub does not guarantee for tomorrow, right? I mean, we have other competitors like Singapore and Shanghai. And so um, I just think that there's a lot the government needs to do, not just to reform the healthcare system, but also, you know, how do you build up Hong Kong's reputation? How do you improve Hong Kong uh, image? in the financial world? There's a lot that uh, the government would need to reflect upon. What's happening in Hong Kong reflects the broader backdrop of what's happening in China, where the government is struggling to contain the virus after two years of COVID-0 has kept the world's second biggest economy sealed off. Hong Kong may serve as a petri dish for how China eventually transitions to living with the virus and reconnecting with the rest of the world, Jiang says. China can probably live without Hong Kong, but China will do much better with Hong Kong. And Hong Kong remains a very important and strategic asset for the mainland. And you see that Beijing has been pulling a lot of resources into Hong Kong and because Beijing wants Hong Kong to succeed, right? I mean, the People's Bank of China is now actively promoting Hong Kong as an offshore trading hub for the Yuan. For a sense as to how business people are viewing the crisis, I spoke with Hing Chow, executive chairman of Wagwong Shipping, one of Hong Kong's leading privately owned ship owners. 
Chow says that for confidence to be restored, the authorities are going to have to deliver policies that highlight Hong Kong's competitive strengths compared with rivals. I think since 1997, particularly over the last 10 years, Hong Kong has been uh, heading towards a crossroad. I think we are at the crossroad. So at this crossroad, a lot of decision-making that's being taken today and in the coming two to three years will determine where we end up, will determine whether Hong Kong can remain competitive. Chow's family-run company has been in Hong Kong since 1952 and has seen the city go through tumult before. The city has reinvented itself multiple times. Hong Kong was a centre for light industry in the 1960s and 70s and transformed into a vital shipping centre in the 70s and 80s. But in the 1990s, it had developed into one of the world's leading financial centres. Hong Kong will continue to adjust to the global situation um, and Hong Kong will continue to reinvent itself. But we, I think it's important for people not to get stuck to an idea of Hong Kong that's fixing because as we can see globally things are changing very rapidly. For the final word here's David Webb again on whether those fleeing residents will ever return. Some of them hopefully will come back after the Titanic um, is, is either raised or doesn't sink um, but um, right now the, the brain drain is being accelerated and that's very worrying. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. Tom, you lived for 11 years in Beijing. You probably spent more time in Hong Kong than most of the people listening. Is it over? Is it the end of Hong Kong? So I think Hong Kong has been hit by uh, two really big challenges, Stephanie. Uh, So the first is a governance challenge. Historically, Hong Kong worked because it provided a gateway to the Chinese market, but Western standards of governance a Western approach to the law, a Western approach to regulation, a Western approach to markets. Now that is being taken away as Hong Kong moves closer to the mainland's approach. Um, And the second, of course, is COVID. Two years of lockdowns, of intense testing, um, and then at the end, a kind of failure and the disease tragically sweeping across uh, the island. Um, So can, can Hong Kong come back from these two challenges? Well, COVID, we all hope, will at some point be a memory. Um, the governance challenge, I'm not sure that's going to go away. And just to go back to COVID, this is a serious challenge for China. Having had this zero COVID strategy that worked so well in the early stages of the pandemic, how do you think it's going to extricate itself? And with with what potential cost to the economy? So in 2020, um, China's control of COVID at home 
was drastic but effective. If you look at China in international comparison back in 2020, 2021, on the economic dimension and on the healthcare dimension, they look pretty impressive. In 2022, though, they've got a challenge. Their population hasn't ever had COVID, so they don't have natural immunity. And the vaccines they've developed at home, they're not bad, but they're not best in class. So they don't have good immunity from mRNA vaccines either. Um, and what that means is that even when you see a few cases, Chinese authorities have to respond by locking down entire cities. And we've seen that already this year with the lockdowns in Shenzhen, in Jilin, and now in Shanghai. The question is, what's the path forwards? Well, I think many epidemiologists, um, many health experts would say that the right path forward for China is a controlled opening. Acquire a bunch of the effective mRNA vaccines, give those to the entire population of a city or a province, bring healthcare resources into place, and then open that province and allow the virus to move across it. Um, and yes, there would be a cost in public health, but ultimately the payoff would be that the population has a measure of immunity. And if that process continues across the rest of the country, ultimately the entire population would have a measure of immunity and China could reopen. Is China ultimately going to take that path? I think the answer is yes. Are they going to take that path in the immediate future, in the months ahead? I think the answer is no. China does not have elections, but it does have politics. And at the end of this year, there's a crucial political moment. President Xi Jinping positioning for a third term as president, a third term as general secretary of the Communist Party. I think the, the willingness to take risks ahead of that crucial meeting, which we expect in the fall, is going to be pretty low. So if China ultimately does move on to a controlled opening path, I think that's going to be a 2023 story, not a 2022 story. Tom Orlick, thank you very much. That's it for a frequent flyer episode of Stephanomics, around the globe in just over 30 minutes. We'll be back next week with a special episode talking to the ubiquitous Larry Summers. Last year, he was worried about inflation when the rest of the world was not. What's he worried about now? Find out next week. In the meantime, check out the Bloomberg News website for more on all the stories featured today and follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson with support from Soma Sadi. Special thanks to Tom Orlick, Sean Donnan, Carolyn Look, Jana Randau, Josephine Fokul, Aggie Cantrell, Jan-Patrick Barnett and Ender Curran. Mike Sasso is executive producer of Stephanomics, though Lucy Meakin also helped out today. And the head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Come on. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.